It's December 4th, 2013, and welcome to another edition of Bite Marks Cafe, where we serve you the first bite of today's technology. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa, and we cover the geek beat here on Hawaii Public Radio. First, a look at the latest tech news and happenings in Hawaii and beyond. And joining us today is Justin Kong and Dr. Monique Chiba from the UH Math Department to tell us about the upcoming Be a Scientist Night. And finally, it's time for our annual tech shopping show, where a couple of hardcore gadget geeks share their takes on the latest tech tools and toys. They'll answer your questions about what to buy for that special geek in your life, so grab your shopping list and get ready to call in or tweet. But first, the headlines. Well, the Hawaii Undersea Research Laboratory, or HURL, has logged over 9,000 hours underwater, collecting video and data that has identified more than 1,100 unique deep-sea animals in its 30 years of submersible operations. But this week, Hurl made national headlines with the discovery of World War II-era Japanese submarine that had been lost since, the 19, since 1946, the fourth of five Japanese submarines intentionally scuttled by the U.S. Navy after the war. The hunt was part of the laboratory's Maritime Heritage Research Program, conducted for the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. Hurl has been deployed to search for submarines and other underwater cultural resources since 1992. The submarine was discovered in 2,300 feet of water southwest of Oahu by Hurl Director and Chief Submarine Pilot Terry Kirby. This latest submarine was only the third Sent of, uh, was only one of three Sentoku-class submarines ever built, the largest submarines in the world prior to the advent of nuclear power subs. Kirby said in a statement, the sub has been on our two-fine list for some time. It is a unique and very historic submarine. Finding it where we did was totally unexpected. All of our research pointed it to being further out to sea. The sub had a range of over 37,000 miles, able to travel one and a half times around the world without refueling, and could carry up to three airplanes that could be launched by catapult to drop bombs on enemy targets. The U.S. Navy sunk it and four other captured subs to keep them out of the hands of the Soviet Union. Now, you know, when I was reading this story, I thought, wow, this is kind of interesting. You know, there's this, there's this sub that was sunk and they found it. And then, of course, I read a little later on and it was like <clears throat> because there was a, this transition from one war into another war. And I'm thinking, what was it that, you know, actually happened? And what what fascinates me is that it was actually sunk, and we were the ones that sunk it, and we were the ones that placed it there. And, so, I, and basically, we didn't want to know where it was, because as a, res, as a result of the treaty that we signed at the end of the war, the Soviets would have had access to this submarine and its technology. So we said, well, if, if that way, we, nobody can have it. And right. So, so the conversation that must have happened in somebody's <laughs> back room or some military secret operations was, okay, you guys take it out and dump it, and don't record where it is right. because we really don't know where it is. Right, taken out by three uh, U.S. Navy torpedoes. I, I just found it fascinating on, in all of the discussions of this specific class of submarine, so large. It's a submarine that carried airplanes, which yeah. is remarkable to me because actually that was not something that anyone had thought of before or was actually in operation before because submarines were primarily used to attack surface ships. Mm -hmm. So with this, they said, well, wait a minute. So that's how ballistic missile submarines came about bring them up to the surface to deliver attacks by air, but it was something that the Japanese had done, so yeah. very impressive. No, this is a fascinating story. Well, in other ocean news, researchers at the University of Hawaii, working with colleagues at Stanford University and the University of Alaska, have developed a plan to help protect the environment as global interest in deep-sea mining grows. The group has proposed a map and a management plan to the United Nations and its International Seabed Authority, which was created to oversee exploration and resource extraction in international national waters. 
Well, 500 miles southeast of uh, Hawaii, 16,000 feet uh, down in international waters, massive amounts of mineral resources sit in the form of manganese nodules. International interest grows in tapping them for valuable raw materials like nickel, copper, and other rare earth elements needed to build modern gadgets and appliances. Spanning an area the size of the continental United States, the CCZ, or Clarion-Clipperton Fracture Zone, is already the size of 12 mining exploration claims by various nations, some as large as 45,000 square miles. The objective was to protect the biodiversity and overall ecosystem of the seafloor, but minimize additional costs and interference with mining claims. The authority has already provisionally accepted the plan and is preventing new mining claims from overlapping, overlapping these protected areas. Areas. Team founder Craig Smith, an oceanography professor at UH, said in a statement, Establishing protections at the international scale represents a major marine management accomplishment. This also sets a precedent for establishing protected areas before mining activities actually begin. In essence, we are closing the barn doors before the cows escape. Well, of course, you know, when um, when you think about it, how people have been or, or, you know, the fishing industry doing sort of the bottom fishing and scraping the bottoms and ruining the corals that exist on in that ecosystem. And then now if you start thinking about if you have sort of multinational mining expeditions going out into the seabeds and extracting all these uh, nodules, what kinds of damage would possibly be introduced. And it's really good that they're coming up with ways to maybe prevent that from happening. And really, it's the scale that's impressive mm-hmm. in developing this uh, this protected area, 10 times the size of the Papahanaumokuakea Marine National Monument, which is already what you would consider an almost impossible to, to monitor protected zone. And this is all deep sea underwater. And in fact, the reason why it's valuable is not because of what we know is there, like these manganese nodules, but because we haven't explored it enough to know what other things are there, you know, species and things that we've not discussed. Yet. Right, and you know the rare earths are being uh, kind of depleted on in terrestrial areas. So, you know, people you have keep to getting start, those smartphones. That's you right. Get this stuff from people somewhere. People gonna have to find it uh, at the bottom of the ocean. But you know, you have to protect the bottom of the ocean. What I also thought was interesting was this uh, ecosystem-based management plan actually started from uh, the way these plans work in California. This California state government plan. Mm-hmm. They basically had to scale that up to work underwater and in a much bigger area. Question is, how are they going to, you know, police that? But anyway, that's for another story. <laughs> for sure. Next up, the uh, Hawaii, a Hawaiian company uh, placed in the top three of a sustainable seafood competition that wrapped up last week. The Fish 2.0 business competition was aimed at uh, connecting fish and aquaculture businesses and investors that want to support sustainable seafood companies. Kicked off in March with more than 80 entries, the finals were held at Stanford University on Monday. Waimanalo Bay's Ho'oulu Pacific took third and won $10,000 for its distributed aquaponic system. Ho'oulu deploys aquaponic technology at a network of island households to commercially grow fish and vegetables. The company says its approach is six times more productive and uses 98% less water and energy than traditional agriculture. In the Fish 2.0 finals, 11 semifinalists and 10 finalists pitched their business to investors and judges. The semifinalists each gave a 90-second pitch, and the 10 finalists each gave a 10-minute presentation, with additional question and answer time with the panel of five investor judges. The Fish 2.0 competition was open to any aquaculture or wild fisheries business that used or produced seafood from closed containment, uh, uh, recirculating systems, 
Participating uh, investors were seeking investment opportunities ranging from $100,000 to $10 million in equity. First place went to Blue Sea Labs in San Francisco for its use of e-commerce to shorten the seafood supply chain and improve transparency. Second place went to Cryosite, which came out of the Harvard Innovation Lab, and they freeze fish eggs to provide a year-round supply. Now, I just thought this story was pretty interesting, not only for the fact that the um, whole Ulu Pacific uh, won third place in this competition, but, you know, we're always talking about Web 2.0 and 2.0 this and 2.0 that, and we've got uh, Startup Paradise and, the you know, the uh, Demo Day going on today and, the you know, the Venture Capital Summit, and, you know, we're we're so into all this 2.0 stuff, and here's a here's a competition for FISH 2.0. Right, and you know, again, when we talk about the resources that we need, we've talked a lot about Hawaii Oceanic Technology and their aquaculture cages that are so large because they're talking about volumes of fish that are needed to meet the basic growing needs of the human population mm-hmm. that you're not going to get through traditional methods, and traditional methods are depleting these resources. So I like that there was a lot of this high-level energy and innovation and investment kind of pointed in this particular direction. As for whole Pacific, it's an interesting idea. In fact, they piloted their program in American Samoa, mm-hmm. um, but now they're basically going to be putting 50 backyard aquaponic systems in homes in Waimanalo, and it's a rent-to-own system. So first of all, it'll produce more vegetables and fish than you could use as a household, household owner, but when you become part of the sales chain to sell that, mm-hmm. you pay off the system. Eventually, you own the system. I think it's a win-win-win for everybody That's involved. cool. I, we got to get those guys on the radio and talk about Fish 2.0 and their, their aquaponic system. Absolutely. Students at Mid-Pacific Institute are participating in a global initiative to preserve cultural heritage sites using new 3D capture technology, ensuring they are available to future generations despite real-world damage and loss to natural disasters or human activity. The Sai Ark project was established after the destruction of the 1,600-year-old Buddha statues in Afghanistan in 2003. Now, Mid-Pacific is partnering with Sai Ark and local historic preservation foundations to explore how younger generations can be enlisted to contribute to the free online library. Mid-Pacific Institute President Paul Turnbull on Monday told tech site Gizmodo, Reality Capture is a powerful tool for the younger generation to preserve our cultural heritage locally while also bridging or building stronger contextual understanding of global cultures and histories. The school partnered with SciArc as well as historic preservation groups to conduct a pilot capture effort at the Mission Santa Ines in California, a historic site at risk of destruction due to constant earthquakes. Student teams used a 3D scanner and software provided by SciArc to produce a 3D image of the mission. But MPI is looking ahead to local initiatives, ranging from capturing Pearl Harbor historic sites to Japanese-American internment camp locations on the mainland. And Turnbull said that enlisting schools in cultural heritage preservation efforts is mutually beneficial. Projects like SciArc can cover more ground around the world, and students are given unique opportunities in project-based, multidisciplinary environments, as well as valuable training and experience with cutting-edge technology. You know, I saw uh, some examples of, of video of the SciArc project. And and it was one of them was uh, of a Buddhist statue and uh, how they were able to with their software isolate the 3D and and really you know be able to take that 3D model and and perhaps use it in other kinds of uh, presentations and I think it's pretty cool because you know at a fundamental basis I mean you you can take a, there's a program on the uh, for the iPhone called Scene where you can do a sort of like a little 3D thing but if you start to get mass of people crowdsourcing sort of these 3D images of, you know, a large object. If you had the computing power, you can sort of 
piece that all together. Right, and of course, you look at this idea. Sure, it's great that you can make a 3D model of your Starbucks cup, but mm-hmm. why not focus on temples and things that are deteriorating? Even through tourism, you know, those environments are changing. And this is really high-end kind of uh, crowdsourcing and using laser scanning, photogrammetry, and traditional survey techniques. The things that come out of this is engineering grade. So you could, in fact, you're talking about, we've talked about Oculus Rift, Rift mm-hmm. and 3D goggles. You could literally reproduce a historic site so well that you could walk around it and explore it, and that is timeless. In fact, I thought what was interesting about the SciArc project is they're very careful about all of the information be avail- being available freely and forever. They've got a two-petabyte archive, and they're keeping the gold master of all of these things in, like, the gold mountain, you know, deep underwater, uh, deep underground archive in mm-hmm. Pennsylvania. Well, you know, I think uh, with the combination of crowdsourcing and computing power, I mean, this is probably a, a project that could actually make a difference. And again, things that students should do and are probably getting good skills as well. And we wanted to leave you with a couple of quick items to share with you. Mayor Kirk Caldwell signed Bill 53 relating to open data into law. The bill calls for city departments to make data already deemed public more easily accessible to the public. One way to do this is to make the data available on the city's open data portal, data.honolulu.gov. The bill now becomes Ordinance 1339 and goes into effect immediately. A lot of that through your hard work, Bert. Congratulations. Thank you very much. The Department of Commerce and Consumer Affairs has contracted the company SMS to conduct a phone survey over the next few weeks of Hawaii residents and small businesses to find out how people in the islands are using their Internet connections and how they plan to use Internet service in the future. So be aware the phone calls will be made to businesses during the day from 9 to 5 p.m. on weekdays and to residents from noon to 9 p.m. on weekdays weekdays and 10 to 5 p.m. on Saturdays. So if you get that call, don't hang up. Well, if you're a tech person and still have a phone line. That's true. true. (laughs) Now joining us here in the studio is Justin Kong and Dr. Monique Chiba from the UH Math Department and KCC. And we want to have them here to tell us about the Be a Scientist Night. Welcome to the show, Justin and Monique. Thank you very much. Good afternoon. Thank you. So now, uh, Monique, you've been telling us that the uh, um, Be a Scientist program has been going on for like four years. Yeah, we have developed a very strong partnership with the Institute for Human Services over the last four years. And it started with a light involvement, but now uh, it's getting more intense. Currently, we have a graduate student going there three times a week and working with the children and Angela Dumais in the afternoon um, to provide some educational support for those children when they're done with school. So this is basically going to the, the to the homeless shelter in Evil A, and you know I, I imagine lots of community groups might go there to do presentations, share information, hold activities. But the specific focus here is to talk about science and technology and careers and pathways there. Correct? Right, and uh, mostly we focus on mathematics. Mathematics is a skill, and and it's a core subject that every kids. Uh, needs to master if they want to be able to progress in their education. So I think what is really important is that we have that, uh, we sustain the level of intensity currently for a whole year. We go there three times a week. So there is the opportunity to develop a real relationship with the children, and that makes a huge difference. Now, are the the kids that are, um, you know, being, I guess, uh, serviced and taught uh, at the Institute for Human Services, they're all they're also going to school, right? I mean, they're not absolutely yes. So this is just to, to augment that study, right? We work with them after school when they come back, mm-hmm. and we try to help them on their homework mm-hmm. uh, when mm. it's necessary. But at the same time, we engage them and offer them resources 
that they typically do not have access to. Mm -hmm. Now, if I were a kid and whether, you know, whatever my situation, if someone said, hey, some people are coming to talk about math, I'm not sure how excited <laughs> I would be. But, but Justin, what are some of the activities specifically that are made available? Um, well, it really depends upon the partnership. In our, in our particular case, we're sending, um, as Monique said, a graduate student every week for three times a week, and he brought some really interesting ideas. One of them, I know he was teaching them how to actually program um, at a very young age with um, you know, different sort of interfaces that aren't so complicated so that they can actually start even when they're young. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, this is something that is going on on a regular basis, but then you have the Be a Scientist Night, and Be a Scientist Night is a special kind of event. Uh, Justin, why don't you tell us a little, about, little bit about that? That's correct. Um, we're having a Be a Scientist Night, as you said, this Friday from 6 o'clock to 8 o'clock at the IHS uh, warehouse. Mm -hmm. And we have all sorts of activities from all sorts of departments, actually. Um, the math, math department is sponsoring it, but we have uh, the IFA, which is the Institute for Astronomy. We have botany. We have um, biology. We have the PBRC. They're bringing all sorts of exhibits like bees, live bees. We have plankton. <laughs> um, there's actually going to be a small petting zoo. Um, Monique's Math 100 classes are also bringing in different activities. We have Lego robots. We have um, rockets. Yeah. That, that will be exciting. We've oh, yeah. Rockets. Where, are the rockets coming from windward? Those guys have rockets. <laughs> yes, it's exactly. The, you saw them over there. Absolutely. Yeah, that's the same uh, gang that is going. They, those are the graduate students in the math department. And we are really going to transform the shelter into a science lab mm -hmm. for a night. And, and it's really about unification. You know, it's the entire College of Natural Science uh, of the University of Hawaii that gets together and uh, that goes there. And, and that evening, there is. Uh, it does not matter who you are, where you live, which right. school you go. You're just a scientist. And, and everybody is going. Curiosity is a gift that every human being received. And, and we just mm. want to nurture that for every single children. So that's why we're calling uh, people that do not live at the shelter to join us as well. We want the kids from the shelter to be engaged with other children that are maybe more privileged mm. on an everyday basis, mm. but they are going to bring each other a lot uh, to do the same activities together. It's very important. Mm -hmm. So it's a free event, and we really would like as many people as possible to come. Mm -hmm. Well, so you said this is the fourth year, Mooney. Can I ask, yes. how have you seen the, the, the children respond to this program? Oh, oh it, it is magical. <laughs> I mean, uh, the first year they were very doubtful what is going to happen when we told them, oh, we're going to do science for night and <laughs> how they're going to react and what other parents going to be involved because that's very important. And we have seen first they were very shy. They would come and stay away from us. And, but little by little and also by having other children coming, uh, we, it has blossomed into something really fantastic. And uh, the parents uh, of the shelter of those children are getting engaged, and this is really nice. I think it's very important for the kids to see their mm -hmm. parents going through the activity, yeah. having fun, asking questions, uh, and, and just spending a night together with no, no thinking about anything else. That's great. So, so Justin, yeah, tell us where and when is this going to take place? It's going to be 6 p.m. till 8 p.m. at the IHS warehouse, which is right across from HCC. Right across from oh. HCC, you Honolulu, mean Honolulu Community, Honolulu Community College, yeah. Yeah. right next to Costco. Is there area. a website where they can go for more information? Yes, you can go to superm. 
math.hoy. Uh, well, sorry, what was it? Yeah, super, super I think super-m, right? Anyway, yes. I will put it up on the yes, show notes. People want to <laughs> go and see the link. I, it sounds like my mind for a this fantastic second. event. All right, so uh, we want to thank Justin and Monique for joining thank us. Thank you thank so you much. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Yes. And that's what's been happening this week. We'll take a short break, and when we return, we'll be joined by Paul Lawler and Todd Ogasawar to tell us what should be on your Christmas wish list? Are you considering a tech gift for that special someone, a gadget, a smartphone, a tablet, a game system? We'd, of course, love your questions, your calls. In fact, your recommendations, if you have them. Give us a call at 941-3689 or toll-free from the neighbor rounds at 877-941-3689. And, of course, we're live on the web, so you can tweet us your questions at ByteMarks or at Hawaii. This is Bite Marks Cafe. It's an acoustic ensemble with violin, guitar, piano, clarinet, bass clarinet, and ukulele. You'll hear echoes of gypsy jazz, plenty of influence from the Great American Songbook, and some new original songs in the music of Vivo. The trio will be performing live in our studio tomorrow morning at 8 on The Conversation. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Osprey Oria Lake, author of Uprisings for the Earth. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about reconnecting culture with nature. Sunday morning at 11. Welcome back to Bite Mark Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. And joining us today is Paul Lawler and Todd Ogasawara. Paul is an instructor at the Travel Institute or oh, Travel Industry Management Department over at University of Hawaii and an IT consultant and an avid amateur astronomer and a gadget geek extraordinaire. That's why he's here. Uh, Todd, meanwhile, leads a secret life as the state's broadband coordinator, but in public, he covers the wireless device market on his site at mobileviews.com. And uh, let's see, what is on the market? And I want to find out about this TARDIS that you were going to tell me about. <laughs> or more realistically, a new smartphone. We've got the expert here, so we want you to give us a call. That number is 941-3689 on Oahu or 877-941-3689. From the neighbor islands, Todd and Paul, we want to welcome you both to Bite Marsh Cafe. Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, we're going to start with uh, uh, Todd because, uh, you know, we are sort of uh, closet experts on the uh, game consoles, uh, but uh, I know you are an actual owner of a PS3 and an Xbox 360. And the original Xbox. And I want to hear your thoughts on, you know, would you consider the new uh, uh, game consoles that just came out, the Xbox One and the um, PlayStation 4? I have absolutely no interest in buying either well, one. Well, that was a great interview. Thank you very much, uh, Todd. <laughs> well, it is an interesting thought. I mean, it's been, what, seven, eight years since the last game system on either side. It is. And in the world of technology, that is an enormous amount of time for a single platform to, to be relevant. And now they're excited about hitting a million sales or two million sales when you're talking about iPhones and iPads and tablets and other devices that people are playing games on that number in the billions. So uh, it does make me wonder how uh, relevant 
dedicated game systems are. But from what I understand, you know, if you're still into that, the PS4, for example, is a pretty strong powerhouse. But uh, I think a lot of people are looking at the Xbox One because it's more trying to be a living room play. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, a couple of things, actually. One, a lot has happened in the last seven years. There was no iPad seven years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there were no tablets seven years ago. And that's become, I think, the dominant, well, one of the dominant playing uh, f- formats for playing games, that and phones, of course. And so now uh, you really have to be a very serious game player to put out four or $500 for a console and then 40 to $60 per game. Uh, you're talking probably $1,000 for half a dozen games. Uh, with that, you know, you can buy half a dozen games for free on. So, iPad. is is uh, Microsoft's strategy really to appeal to the broader population by creating like the Xbox One that has is sort of a multi-function, multi-capable machine that sits in your living room versus the PlayStation Four, which seems to be more geared to the hardcore gamer who wants a high-performing console. Well, actually, I, I'm, I'm not so sure about that dichotomy, but certainly Microsoft wants to be in control of your living room habits. Mm-hmm. They want you to be playing games. They want you to watch movies and television shows, streaming, of course. Uh, they want you to talk to people over Skype uh, on the Xbox One. But really, at least, and I don't know about the PS4, but the PS3 was an actually a very good uh, home entertainment center because it has a Blu-ray player. Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't have to pay a yearly fee to watch Netflix on it. You do for the Xbox, any of the Xboxes. So it's really quite a good, quite a good uh, addition to your. I heard that the PS4 uh, really kind of stripped a lot of that multifunction capability out of. Uh, out well, of they demoted it. Like for uh. example, the PS3 was the number one viewing device for Netflix for a long time, but now they moved it to like a sec- secondary le- level and everything, and it's putting games first. But again, I think unfortunately we're not exactly the target market for these game systems. We'd certainly love to hear anyone's thoughts on uh, what to get to that gamer teen in your life. Nine four one three six eight nine or eight seven seven nine four one three six eight nine from the neighbor islands. Paul, when you are looking for game entertainment. Where do you turn? Uh, Well, I have a Wii. I don't have an Xbox or a PlayStation. But honestly, it's been relegated to very rare use when my grandchildren come over. Mm. And most of the gaming that I do is Mm tablet-based. I want to hear a little bit more about your experience with the Wii because, you know, you got the Xbox with Kinect. And, you know, people have said that as a novelty, you know, you standing in front of your machine and swinging your arms and, you know, maybe sort of uh, mimicking some level of exercise – was a novelty for a while, but then, you know, is it something that you can maintain? I mean, you know, in my case, I don't have the room to really jump around in front of my TV. <laughs> so, I, you know, I haven't really redesigned my living room to, to provide that kind of space. I mean, is, it, is that a short-lived sort of experience? Well, I, I do have a Wii Fit, mm-hmm. and I have not used it very much. It, it just you, you need too much room, and mm-hmm. it, it, it really isn't the same experience as getting out and running or jogging. Or I, I, I would agree. That's supposed to be one of the improvements with the Xbox One, by the way. The Kinect is supposed to require less living room space than the other one, which I think had a minimum of six to eight feet. I right. I say. think, yeah, you can get a lot closer, right? And the... they're really thinking more, again, with multimedia that it's more gesture-based. So you move your hand through the air to navigate the interface. It also has more voice commands. So people say it's like living in the Jetsons where you walk into your room. You can say Xbox on. It turns on. The Connect is scanning you. It recognizes your body shape and face, and it just says, hi, Todd. <laughs> I'm not sure if I would really enjoy that, but I guess that's one of the, the advantages that they have. Yeah, you just better be you know, in front of it with, your, you know, with some clothes on. 
<laughs> okay, yeah. Well, we will hope that the NSA doesn't have a relationship quite yet with these systems. Again, we are ready to take your calls on gadgets you might want to buy or gadgets you might want to recommend here live at 941-3689 or 877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands. Now, Todd, you work at mobileviews.com. You cover this space very cl- carefully. So Obviously, it's been an exciting year in the smartphone space. You have uh, the new iPhone 5S, and you have actually a couple of pretty interesting Android phones, the Moto X from Motorola, the Nexus 5 from Google. And although it might be blasphemy for an iPhone lover like myself, even Microsoft has some pretty decent phones out there. Uh, What are the highlights for you this year? Well, I think... uh like you said, the, the Nexus 5 has been very interesting. It's a big, huge phone. I, I saw yours. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> it's, it's a big, huge phone. It's a nice screen. Uh, KitKat, which is the latest version of Android, has some very nice cleanup features compared to the slightly older version. Uh, my older Nexus 4, by the way, got the KitKat upgrade too, so I've got the latest version of Android on it. Uh, certainly the iPhone 5S's fingerprint scanner seems to be a lot more popular with people than I think people expected, mostly because it appears to actually work. Um, well, you know, I heard that uh, just comparing, uh, you know, I have a Nexus 4 and sort of reading some of the reviews about the uh, camera on on the um, iPhone 5S, uh, it, it, you know, it's a lot better on the iPhone than it is on the Nexus. And I would agree because I took a bunch of photos with my Nexus 4 and it really sucked. But, <laughs> you know, I mean, what, what, what's your what's your sort of estimation? I, I know... Ryan, you got a you know like a Nexus Five. How's the photos on that? I mean, I know the, you know the iPhone Five S is great. So I would say the camera on the iPhone remains its standout consumer appealing feature. You get photos out of it that even like my friends, my coworkers, they still are shocked at the quality that you can get off the iPhone. And I think that's kind of why, even though it's like the fifth iteration, and a lot of people say it's just more of the same. If more of the same is good, I think that that's totally worth it. Uh, Paul, in terms of smartphones, do you? Think of the cutting edge, or you live with more basic means. Um, I honestly still am using an iPhone 4S because I got the new version of the operating system. And and it's like getting a new phone. Which is like getting a new phone. And I just don't see anything appealing about the iPhone 5 other than, you know, the fingerprint thing. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I was hoping for a bigger screen. I was hoping for something more in line with what, where the Android phones are going. And it, it just didn't seem worth upgrading yet. How's the uh, how's the performance by you know after upgrading it to uh, the the latest iOS? Really, really bad. Also, my my battery dies at noon now. Huh. Well, Todd, uh, like I mentioned though, I think that uh, I was my, one of my coworkers has a Windows eight phone seven phone eight. I forget eight. what they call it. Um, and it's actually not an unattractive device. It's better than a poking eye with a sharp stick. <laughs> um, I used to be a, a devoted Windows phone user, I, mm-hmm. should, I should mention. I've been using one variant or another since it came out in 2001. Uh, and then I stopped with Windows 7, 7, yeah, 7.0 because I, it just didn't seem to be progressing fast enough, not so much in how it works. But in terms of how Microsoft couldn't attract the app developers, that's been changing lately. And certainly the Nokia Lumia 1020 with its 41 megapixel camera. Now that camera is outstanding. Mm -hmm. Now we're talking to a couple of gadget geeks, Todd Agasawara and Paul Lawler. And we're reviewing some potential gifts that might be uh, suitable for giving your favorite geek. And if you have uh, an interest in that and want to give us a call and get their suggestions, give us a call the number here, 941-3689 or from the neighbor islands at one eight seven seven nine four one three six eight nine. 
941-3689. We want to welcome Frank from Salt Lake. Thanks for calling Bike March Cafe. Hey, good evening, guys. How's it going? Uh, I'm in the market for a new TV because I just bought a PS4, and I was wondering uh, what's the best uh, TV out there and what's the best for gaming, uh, 60 hertz or 120 hertz? Ah, good question. Wow, that's a that's a great question. I don't know if I have a great answer, but I, I will say this: you know, the the best thing to do is is go out and search to uh, search the internet to see what combination people are using with whatever console you're using. Uh, that's usually you know usually people have a favorites whether they have a PS3 or PS4. Or I guess PS4 isn't out yet, but PS3 or, or Xbox. Um, the thing to look for, I think, is when you're in the store, it's really hard to see what it looks like. So it's good to read the reviews instead of just standing on the floor and think it looks nice because it's going to look different in your room. Because uh, right. what you really want are blacks that are black. That's the trick. You know, if the blacks are not deep black when you get home, you're going to be disappointed. Now, it is a, a relevant question for the PS4 because, as we mentioned, it is, uh, I think it was Bird on TV said it's like a love letter to gamers. It is really a high-performance device. Even when they have the same games as other platforms, it's a much higher-resolution game on the PS4. So you're talking about uh, response time. You're talking about, you know, you're going to look at plasma versus LCD. Um well, I'm curious. Did, did you have any specific models in mind for for your uh, for your living room? Oh, it's more for my uh, man cave. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so it's a 46 inch. Wow. Uh, uh, around that size, and I heard Samsung is pretty good. The uh, LEDs. I'm a big fan of Samsung. Oh, you have one. I do. All right. Yeah, so, so it's working out pretty good. But yeah. I, I'm not a big gamer, so I, I'm not sure how well it works with game consoles. But in terms of um, color fidelity and black blacks, Samsungs are very good. Well, Samsung awesome. does have a new uh, LCD uh, monitor out as well as, of course, their their plasma model. So, yeah, I would definitely take a look at that. I envy you having a man cave. Uh, but uh, I think the Internet is probably your best bet Um a lot of people don't change their TVs that often, so I, I would also admit it's not something that I could uh, rattle off a model number. Yeah, and, and sites like CNET especially have people who all they do all day long is look at different displays, and they're the real experts of this stuff. And I guess the other thing, too, is uh, you know, is it within your price range? I mean, there's probably <laughs> a consideration for how much it costs. I mean, you know, you could easily well, start it, to get into the thousands of dollars. Well, right? fortunately, these days, if it's under 60 inches, they're amazingly affordable, yeah. well under $1,000. Good luck in your search, and uh, if you come up with a recommendation, you can email us and let us know what you picked up. Well, thanks, All right, Frank. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Well, that sounds uh, good. No, we were kind of talking about you know TVs and you know connecting these uh, game consoles, but what about things like Chromecast or somebody? In fact, my brother was asking me, "Bro, what do I buy if I want to buy something that uh, can stream and and uh, provide the uh, content to my TV? What would you suggest?" And you know, we're we're looking at a Chromecast right now. Why don't you knock it on the table and let people hear what it oh, sounds? Oh yes, like? <laughs> this is what a Chromecast. Oh, okay, that's what it well, sounds. Well, so like. this is new this year, right, Paul? Tell us about it. Uh, yeah, so Chromecast is Google's um, entry into the market, and I can't really say it competes with Apple TV, but it's certainly aimed at the same idea. But the price is thirty five dollars. The price I mean, is thirty five dollars. Um, you get what you pay for. Okay, well, and what is it that you? What are you paying for? Well, essentially, Chromecast only does the connecting to the TV part of it. Uh-huh. So you have to have an Android device, or uh, 
your laptop in order to stream to the Chromecast, which then puts it out to the TV. So the Chromecast you're looking at, I mean, it looks like a, a thumb drive. Yep, and it, it plugs directly into the HDMI port of your television. Um, there is a USB uh, port to power it, so that's also, you know, so it's not going to be quite as elegant as just sticking it in your TV. It needs mm-hmm. the power. But, I mean, the fact of the matter is the reason why I want a Chromecast is because I want to experiment with what Google is doing with streaming video, and the fact of the matter is people spend more on iPhone cases than they do on this entire gadget, That's and I true. think that is compelling, Todd. Yeah, and you know, in addition to entertainment, the way I use it is I plug it into some, say somebody's big TV, and I can cast a tab from a Chrome browser on my desktop, either Mac or PC, and so we can be looking at a browser which is you know thirty six, forty, fifty inches wide. Uh, to share that that information, it might be a slide or something, or just looking at a web page together for a design opinion or something. And these are available, um, like in Best Buy stores, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. they're on shelves, which is unusual for some Google products. So okay, so Chromecast thirty five dollars, uh, Apple TV is probably more like a hundred dollars. Uh, how does that compare to, like, say, a Roku or w- which would you get in that sort of range of of uh, uh, devices. I think it depends on what your current media ecosystem is. So if you are have a lot of stuff on iTunes, mm-hmm. video, music, uh, the Apple TV is the way to go because you can stream all of that stuff directly to the Apple TV. On the other hand, if you want a huge range of choices in internet channels, internet video channels, the Roku, I think, has literally hundreds of sources that you can subscribe to now, oh, Some good. many of which are free. Mm-hmm. And the Roku is maybe $69, I think, for its base model. And a lot of people are developing channels just for the Roku. So even if it's something obscure like uh, Taro Gasawara's Bunny Care Show, you can find it on the Roku. Yeah, and you know the, <laughs> the top-end Roku has a very interesting feature where the, the wireless remote control has, an, a, has a port for your headphones. So you can plug your headphones in, and it will stream the audio to you wirelessly. You know, we, I've seen that Bunny Care Sure. It's a pretty good one. We're talking to Todd Agasawara and Paul Lawler for our annual Gadget Gab Fest. If you've got a thought, we'd love your call at 941-3689 or from the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. Of course, we are also monitoring Twitter. And we got a question from John Holland on Twitter who wants to know if we have any thoughts on the drop cam. These are really small, you know, portable, internet-connected video cameras that a lot of people are using. They're called drop cams because you drop them in your your den, you drop them in your office. Uh, Todd, uh, are they too expensive for what you get with a drop cam? Uh, I don't, they're not actually that much more expensive than a really good uh, Wi-Fi-enabled webcam. I think maybe $100 more than something like that. So they are more expensive than perhaps some people want to pay for. But you, as Paul said for the Chromecast, you get what you pay for. And you get a lot. And I think here what you're buying is ease of configuration. So what? Is this just a, basically a plug-and-play webcam? Pretty darn close. So how does that compare to, you know, like getting a GoPro or something like that? Well, it's different. GoPro is meant to be worn. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. You know, so it's more rugged. It's yeah, more drop cam is literally you drop it into place somewhere and you have a webcam for your you know, your pets or your kids or mm-hmm. whatever it is you, need, you want or to Or shall monitor. we say rabbit cage? There you go. <laughs> you know, why don't you have one on your rabbit cage, uh? I have a different webcam on there, but I had to, you know, I had to poke a hole through a firewall and set up a password and all kinds of oh, stuff. Okay. Well, drop cams are very popular for internet streaming shows where you can see behind the scenes. In fact, it would be the sort of thing that we would drop here in the, the Hawaii Public Radio studios if we didn't want to traumatize our listeners with what it actually looks like to do this show. You know, when when you talk about drop cams, I'm curious. Uh, does it use your your 
computer, your PC, your Mac, whatever, as the streaming device? Nope. Where, where's it actually streaming it, it from? It has its own web browser or web server mm-hmm. built into the camera. And how many streams can it actually serve up? Probably not a whole lot. Right? Just one per camera, I would imagine. Yeah. But it, it, it does operate uh, uniquely or independently on your network. But I just uh, went to check it out over at dropcam.com. Mm-hmm. It's $199 for the camera. That is a little And $99 a year for the service. Ah. So you have to really love looking at something to get a drop well, cam. Well, John, thanks for uh, thanks for that tweet. And, uh, you know, we, we love uh, getting the, the questions from Twitter. Uh, we want to continue with our conversation, and we're going to get into more some of these uh, uh, wearable computing and smartwatches and all that good stuff. Want to hold that thought? We'll be right back after this short break to continue our conversation with Paul Lawler and Todd Ogasawara about finding the right tech stocking stuffer. And of course, if you're not on Twitter, you can use that old-fashioned technology known as the phone and give us a call at nine four one three six eight nine. Or if you're on the neighbor islands, you can reach us toll free eight seven seven nine four one three six eight nine. This is Bite Marks Cafe. HPR welcomes up-and-coming indie band Streetlight Cadence to the Atherton Studio on December 7th. Fresh from busking the streets of Honolulu with their original compositions and everything from Pachelbel to Coldplay, Streetlight Cadence takes shelter in the Atherton on Saturday, December 7th at 7.30. Tickets at 955-8821 during business hours or online at hprtickets.org. Imagine there's a way to hack into your brain to rewire it, to make you smarter, even happier. Altering cognitive abilities, altering personality is within our reach now. It's like science fiction. It's mapping an unexplored universe. I'm Guy Raz. The hackers are coming for your brain, the climate, even the animal kingdom on the next TED Radio Hour from NPR. Sunday at noon, following New Dimensions. Welcome back. This is Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ranozawa, and we're talking to Paul Lawler and Todd Ogasawara about finding that perfect gadget gift. And, of course, you know, they brought a bunch of stuff with them. But uh, before we get into that, we want to let you know that you can call us at 941-3689 on Oahu or 877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands. And we wanted to kind of get into some of the wearable computing and and ideas of, uh, you know, we've kind of been following some of the fitness monitors and things like Fitbit and, you know, Paul, I, I know you're kind of into it, so uh, what have you been sort of experimenting with? Uh, well, actually, I have, I have a lot of apps <laughs> that, that do things. Um, off the uh, iPhone. Off of the mm-hmm. iPhone. Mm-hmm. But um, something that Todd actually talked me into buying, I really have to stop listening to Todd, but... Um, I did that a long time ago. I, I have this scale, which was $27, and it connects via Bluetooth low-power Bluetooth 4, to the iPhone. And so every morning when I step on the scale, it automatically transmits the information to the iPhone, tells me whether or not I'm obese, and <laughs> it keeps a, an ongoing record. Some people can answer that question on their own, though, and might not want the answer if they didn't know. But what I think, I mean, the, the key to that scale um, is that, I mean, I have a connected scale. There's the Withing scale. There's the Fitbit scale. But they're $120 mm-hmm. or more. Mm-hmm. How much did you say that was again? $27. $27. is remarkable. Now, how does it, you know, we got a shy caller, and, and, and they ask, so how do you measure the body mass index? Uh, body mass index is a calculation based on your weight and height. Okay, so you have to input the height. You have height. to input you have your, to sort of input your height some, yeah. and your date of birth. Mm-hmm. But uh, so, so the, I think the Withing scale and the Fitbit scale also do kind of a fat calculation. Is that something that this scale This does? one does not do that. They, yeah, they actually use um, some kind of an electronic circuit 
to try and, and measure that, but this one doesn't. Again, do what was that. that one called? It's called a WIT scale. WIT scale. And when, who's the manufacturer? Uh, wit probably oh, wit. <laughs> well you know that's interesting because I did buy it with things that, I mean it, it was 120 something bucks so I basically you know spent an extra 100 bucks for mine which was it does basically the same thing all I really use it for is is weight and BMI now um, one of the things that was very that has constantly come up is when is Apple going to make its smartwatch and while we wait for that apparent eventuality other companies have rushed into that space to beat them there so this year we had the uh, the uh, Samsung smartwatch and then also the Kickstarter backed uh, Pebble watch which is now available on store shelves it's not just your geek who can buy it it's actually there at Best Buy um, Todd have you tried either that Samsung watch or the the Pebble smartwatch I've looked at them, but I haven't bought one. And I have to say, you know, you may th- uh, th- those of you here can see I'm not wearing a watch anymore. And I used to be a devoted watch wearer mm-hmm. uh, because I had a smart watch. Mm-hmm. I had the old Microsoft Spot watch, which very few people. Wow, whoa, liked. that was like in the 1990s. <laughs> not exactly, <laughs> but they, Microsoft turned off the wireless data service to it a couple uh, years ago, so uh. I stopped using it. And I'm waiting for something. But to answer your question, you know, those those watches. Um, Really, they're literally only devices geeks can love at this point. They're kind of huge. and Yeah, and what's <laughs> interesting from a, from a uh, sort of aesthetic standpoint, they basically took the, the watch uh, form factor and, and made the face bigger and put a digital display on it, which you know really doesn't look like a whole uh, interesting thing. I mean, it looks like something out of Dick Tracy, which is like really retro. Actually, a Dick Tracy watch would be very, very nice to have. I wouldn't mind something that looks like that. But mm-hmm. they just... Uh, well, they're also kind of limited, right? Uh, the, the, I think the Pebble is starting to catch up with more right, functionality. Right. The Samsung Watch only works with a couple of different Samsung phones. Mm-hmm. And you have to charge it every day, and it's it's enormous. I mean, for a big watch, it is it is still pretty big. Uh, I do know of people who are very... Uh, very fond of their Pebble watches because it's affordable. It's 150 bucks, and they feel that it is revolutionary that when your phone gets a notification, it shows up on your wrist. So do you want to go through the trouble of digging your phone out of your purse or your pants uh, just because you don't know what that buzz was? Now you know if it was your wife, definitely dig out that phone. If it was just a spam message, you can ignore it. Yeah, and you know that you pointed out something interesting. When I wore my spot watch, I had to carry a charger for it whenever I traveled. <laughs> So the Pebble Watch, because it's got that low, uh, the, the, the almost e-paper screen, you only need to charge it once a week. I can't imagine having to charge a, a watch and a phone and tablets every single day. Well, it's getting to the point now where, you know, every time you go home, you have a whole strip of, uh, <laughs> you know, chargers and you have to charge right. up about four or five different devices. That's why we need all these wireless Qi chargers to really catch up. Now, Paul's on. holding a device that he wants to share with us. What is that? This is what I have to carry around. Remember I said my iPhone dies at noon every day? Uh-huh. So I actually have, this is an Anchor charger. And uh, A N K E R, and I have had several in the past, and I really enjoy this one. It's a four amp charger, and if you have a Samsung phone or another phone that respects the smart port, it will charge twice as fast. Mm. And uh, Todd, you you look you like got, you're carrying a battery too. Yeah, this one is a, an iBats. It's a little bit larger than Paul's physically, but actually has less capacity than his, unfortunately. And Ryan's fumbling through his uh, backpack looking for a, w- a charger. Well, Ryan does that. I'll, I'll say one thing about this one. And I think Paul's also has two charging ports on it, so you can charge two devices simultaneously. Mm-hmm. When I was visiting my daughter at college in October, uh, this was really handy when we were traveling around. We could charge both of our phones at the same time while we were wandering around. I'm I would gonna, say... I'm, I'm oh. not going to bring mine up because mine looks like a baby compared to your guys. Well, I would say that uh, if you're looking for a gift that would be universal for a gadget person or a geek in your life, 
these portable batteries are pretty much a safe bet because we are always searching for a way throughout the day to charge our stuff. I use the Mophie, uh, it's the rugged one, um, because although you can get very cheap, high-capacity external batteries on Amazon for 30 bucks, 40 bucks, I always find the USB connector gets loose and then it stops working or it doesn't hold a charge. So although this is almost overpriced for what it is, it's rugged and it can car- it can charge an entire iPad rather than just a small device. My Nutrent looks like a little baby compared to your guys. Nutrent is one of those Amazon brands and it's actually quite affordable. So there's certainly a solid recommendation. We're talking to Tadagasuara and Paul Lawler about gadgets and cool toys to carry around. If you've got a recommendation or a question, you can reach us at 941-3689 or from the neighbor islands at 877-941-3689. Now, it's time for show and tell, although on the radio it's more talk and tell, because as they do every year, they've brought a satchel full of odd things. We'll start, I think, with uh, Paul. Is that a light bulb? What's so exciting about a light bulb? What is that? It is a light bulb, and I have to tell you, this is absolutely the most my most favorite gift that I've received all year. My daughter gave it to me for my birthday. I opened it up and I looked at it and I said, what is this? It's a light bulb. It's called a Philips Hue. And what it does is it works together with my iOS devices and I can make this light any color I want to. And it's extremely bright. It comes with a set of three and I can make those lights different colors, the same color. I can make them flash. I can dim them, which you normally can't do with a fluorescent bulb. And it also works together with something called ITTT, which stands for If This Then That. And if you go to the ITT website, then you can set up a recipes. Set, a recipe, exactly. Mm-hmm. They call them recipes for what you want the lights to do. So, for example, if the Warriors score a touchdown, I can make all my lights flash green. That now, I can see your man cave with a whole bunch of these lights sort of all in some, you know, interesting display and, and then you with your lava lamps and maybe a little bit of psychedelic music going on. I mean, I, I can really see that being a really cool place to hang out. My coworker is really fashion-oriented, and what attracted her to the hue is that you could actually, if you have a picture hanging in your living room, in fact, in her case, you have a different picture for each season hanging in your living room. You take a picture of that photo or your favorite piece of art or your potted plant, and you can use the Hue app to match a color in that painting exactly. That's so that, correct. that particular shade of purple for the sunset in the image, that can be how you color your room. But it's not a cheap set of light bulbs. Uh, no, it's a it's $199 set wow. of light bulbs. <laughs> That's a lot of light bulbs. And that's just one light that's bulb? That's for three. Oh, three. Okay. Now, uh, Todd, your turn. Um, what, uh, what did you want to show off today? Well, as a devoted MacBook Air user, I brought a Windows machine. <laughs> oh, gee. <laughs> All right. That's great. Uh, I, I, I actually do a lot of things with Windows. So I wanted a very highly portable Windows tablet. And since I'm always touching my screen, I figured, well, I should buy something that does something when I touch it. So I bought the Asus T100, which is a uh, Windows 8.1 tablet. That comes with a physical keyboard that you can attach to it mechanically. It's mm-hmm. not a Bluetooth keyboard, which is kind of nice, actually. Uh, it has 64 gigabyte, gigabytes of RAM. It has a micro SD slot, so I stuck in another 64 gigabytes. And uh, unlike the Surface RT, which I bought last year, it can run any software that I use on my Windows 7 device. So that means you know anything you can think of will run on this thing. And it is it's great to carry on. It's no heavier than my MacBook Air. And uh, you know it does all the Windows stuff that I need to do in that's, it's, the hardware is well – it's well put together. It is good-looking. And if you do live in the Microsoft world, I think that they're, they're, they're serving that market pretty well. Yeah. You know, compared to last year, Windows 8 
<laughs> it was not well received last year. And Windows RT, which I tried to buy into last year, simply didn't pan out. But this year, uh, these really inexpensive tablet touch tablet devices that you can have keyboards with. Can, uh, this one is $400 with the keyboard. Wow, so that price point is really attractive. Yeah, the Dell Venue Pro, which is a Windows 8.1 tablet, no keyboard, but it starts at 300 mm-hmm. Now, is this something that you bought at, at a, a retail outlet here or online? This is online from Amazon. Okay. But, of course, now we have a Microsoft store here in Honolulu. We do indeed. Now, Paul, um, and also this was mentioned on Twitter, there's a white glowing ball changing color in front of you. I, I, I shudder to think how excited you got about a light bulb, but tell me about this plastic ball you've got. Okay, so this is called a Sphero, S-P-H-E-R-O. And basically what it is is it's a white plastic ball. Looks like a pool pool cue ball. It's mm-hmm. made of very rugged plastic. In fact, it's it's dog-proof and it's waterproof. <laughs> dog-proof is very important. So you can play with this in the in the pool. You okay, can, so it's lighting up red because Ryan just shook it. <laughs> you can <laughs> let your dog chase it around. And you can program it using uh, either an Android or an iPhone or an iPad. And you can play games. There's uh, a game where it, there are z- virtual zombies on your screen, and you run over them with the ball. You can make it do things. You can play golf with it. It drives dogs and cats nuts. Because it, it, you basically can drive a, it in any direction on a flat surface. Correct. Now, how many hours a day do you spend <laughs> playing with your Sphero? Well, not a lot, but <laughs> once in a while it's fun to pull out and play with. Well, I know you've brought it to some of uh, the yeah. bite marks. Well, now I'm worried it's going to roll right off the table, but uh, we'll just try it to. It won't get hurt if it does. That's true. That's true. That's pretty cool. So what else do you got there over there, over there, Paul? Oh, I, I saw that one, that uh, that uh, that uh, Mufu. The, the Muku shutter? Oh, Muku. Yeah, Muku. Okay, so the Muku shutter is really a pretty basic thing. Essentially, it's just a little Bluetooth connection to your iPhone. So if you've ever tried to take pictures with your iPhone, and I agree with Ryan, it takes beautiful pictures— but sometimes you just can't hold it steady enough. So with this, you can position the iPhone someplace where you're not having to hold it and you don't have to worry about shaking and shoot off the uh, shutter via Bluetooth. So it's a, basically a remote shutter for an iPhone. This was a Kickstarter project. It was, yes, it was. It kind, of, it kind of looks like a thick stick of gum. How much was or is a shutter Muku? Muku. You know, I don't remember. I believe it was about $29. Now, how did you hear about that? I mean, did, was that something Kick, that— Kickstarter. Uh-huh. And uh, did you did you uh, buy into the Kickstarter campaign? You know, most of my new gadgets have come from buying into Kickstarter campaigns. I would say, again, if you're looking for something to get that geek in your life, uh, you could do worse than look at Kickstarter. The only and most important warning with Kickstarter is that it's a still a speculative site. You might not get what you're paying for, but you can certainly get some of the more interesting stuff out there. Uh, Todd, um, anything else in your bag of goodies? Well, something I haven't bought but I, I find very interesting are, are something, uh, an offshoot of what we were talking about. We are talking about the kind of quantified self stuff. Mm-hmm, the fifth, mm-hmm. You know, they're not just for people. You can get them for pets too. Uh, so quantified pet. What, what it was, so you want to see how far your pet's running around? or Well, a couple of different things. So let's say you've got a dog and you're one, wondering. It's getting maybe a little older. How active is your dog you know, when you're not there? Mm-hmm. You can actually put the, like a, par- uh, a, uh, a whistle pet activity tracker on. Uh, it talks to it, it talk, your computer via Bluetooth or Wi-Fi. It tells you what your dog's been doing all day, how active, you know, when it's running around, that sort of thing. Uh, if you want something a little bit more, there's something called TAG, T-A-G-G, that uh, is a pet tracker. Not only tracks activity, but also through a GPS service, 
it will tell you where your dog or cat has been all day. So are you contemplating getting something like that? And and would you put it on your bunny? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure it would fit on a rabbit, but certainly if uh, a dog, which I'm thinking about getting, oh, you are. Uh, I, would, I would definitely put it on a dog. Oh. Well, I, I should mention one of the Kickstarters that I've been interested in uh, is called the Mimoto. It's a tiny little postage stamp-sized camera that you can clip to your lapel, and it just automatically takes a picture every minute or so all throughout the day and eventually uploads it. And you don't have to share it, but you can look at it and kind of pick out the interesting things. And what a lot of people have been doing with devices like these are attaching them to their cats to see what their cats do all day. Mm-hmm. And you can get them sitting by the side of the road and then chasing after a bird and then you know cuddling with another cat. This whole life that you didn't know your cat was. Now, how to. long does that uh, last? I mean, does it? How do you recharge that? Or is that something that has got a little internal battery? Yeah, it has a little internal battery. Probably lasts over a day, but you do have to charge it. But um, it's it's kind of part of. It's not. Google Glass, mm-hmm. but it's something you can get now that will kind of do be a persistent recording of your own activity. Oh, interesting. Now, Paul, you've had uh, you know these cool sort of uh, AR drones, and I know you told me that uh, you know AR drones are kind of like passe, but haven't they increased the capability of AR drone? And now that you know Amazon and others are looking at deliveries with oh. drones, I mean, <laughs> what, aren't the, isn't the personal drone market opening up? Uh, well, it is. But it's still kind of a play market. It's a it's the model airplane hobbyist market, really. Mm-hmm. Um, the Amazon drone is it got a lot of publicity for Jeff Bezos, but the reality is, of course, that the FAA does not allow commercial use of drones in the United States at all. It is so, yeah. So the likelihood of you actually buying something and flying it around and you know like taking it around your neighborhood or something that's just uh, out of the question. I mean, you can do it personally, but not for commercial purposes. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, last question and always our favorite question: If you were to indulge yourself, let's say you had a budget of three to five hundred dollars, and you were buying yourself a gift, what one thing are you eyeing this Christmas, Todd? I think the Dell Venue Pro Eight, uh, which I mentioned earlier, was an eight-inch tablet, runs Windows eight point one. Uh, and although something I'm not sure I'd buy for myself, but I find fascinating, is a Bluetooth basketball for $300. <laughs> a, Bluetooth. a Bluetooth basketball. What does that, that tell you? That well, apparently this basketball tells you uh, you know, how your shots are going and that sort of thing. It's not something you use for an entire game. It's more for practice for drills and things. Oh, okay. Yeah, Paul, what would you do for the, that kind of money? Um, actually, the thing I want is relatively inexpensive. It's the new um, Fitbit Force. Uh-huh. Oh, is that the bracelet style it's, one? It's uh-huh. a bracelet, so it, it functions as a watch. The form factor is really nice. As well as doing all of the Fitbit things. That's really cool. I'm a big fan of the Fitbit, and I've been using them for years, although I am now on my fifth Fitbit because they're so small, they continually get lost or washed. But uh, still, in fact, my entire office now, I'm competing with them on how many steps I can walk every day. It's good for the exercise. Yeah, well, if I bought something, I'd maybe buy some you know, wireless speakers just so I can listen to my music on my iPhone. But uh, that's that's me. I just kind of pseudo low tech. Anyway, Paul Lawler and Todd Ogasawara, they're early tech adopters and aren't afraid to buy whatever is new. And we want to thank you both for joining us today. Thank you very much. You're welcome. And thank you for listening to Bite Marks Cafe. Join us next week when we'll talk about ocean science aboard the ship Falkor. And if you miss any part of this edition, you can find the podcast of tonight's show on BiteMarksCafe.org. And if you have any comments or suggestions, email us at feedback at BiteMarksCafe.org. Or you can also find us on Twitter. I'm at BiteMarks. And you can follow me at Hawaii. Our engineer is David Chong, and our executive producer is Beth Ann Kozlovich. And we leave you with our song pick of the week. Here is a band called Is Bliss and a song called Desire. See you next week on another edition of Bite Marks Cafe.